Progress versus Parasites by Douglas Carswell. Chapter 5. Rome's Regression. The collapse of the western half of the Roman Empire was perhaps the most dramatic and bloody regression in human history. A highly advanced, technologically sophisticated civilization, capable of sustaining a large, relatively literate and urbanized population, came to an end. The population of Italy and the Western Roman Empire plummeted. Reading and writing were largely forgotten. Efforts by revisionist historians to present the passing of the Roman order in the western end of the Mediterranean as some sort of genteel transformation between the 3rd and 5th centuries are unconvincing. What happened was grisly, with an estimated death toll of about 8 million. Or to put that into perspective, if a similar proportion of the human population would have been killed in the mid-20th century, it would have meant the deaths of 105 million people, far more than were killed in the two world wars combined. It would be a bit like our 21st century Western way of life dramatically regressing back to how things had been in the 14th or 15th centuries, within the space of two or three generations. Roman civic order collapsed as warlords took over. Towns and cities were emptied. A system of clearly defined laws was replaced by a world in which tribal custom and the whim of the barbarian tribal chief prevailed. But the barbarian invasion of the 4th and early 5th centuries were ultimately a symptom of Roman decline, not a cause of it. The Romans had, after all, fought off far more organised foes, such as the Carthaginians. The seeds of Rome's collapse lay not in the arrival of barbarian predators from outside the empire, but due to parasitic predators within. Long before the Roman Republic became an empire in 27 BC, power had become increasingly centralised. As Rome acquired overseas provinces, she outgrew her system of checks and balances, allowing an oligarchy to concentrate more and more power. Vested interests within the Senate enriched themselves by systematically looting the provinces. Sicily's governor, Verres personally made 3 million denarii during his tenure, which some have suggested exceeded the entire tax take of the island. Julius Caesar, while serving briefly as a Roman governor in Spain, managed to acquire an enormous personal fortune, siphoning off for himself some of the profits from plunder. Others in the Senate grew rich from the proceeds of tax farming businesses, the so-called publicani. Cicero estimated that in his time, these publicani made average profits of 120%. A little like corporate banks today, these publicani enabled the state to spend right away by providing investors with cash up front. Investors in the publicani were not, of course, issued with bonds, but like bondholders today, they were guaranteed a slice of future tax revenues. Like the banks and the government in our time, there was a power nexus between the revenue-hungry government and these publicani. 
the publicani became a major investment vehicle for rich Romans, who bought shares in them. Investors were not disappointed. Having won the right to tax the provinces, the publicani systematically looted what they could. In 133 BC, the king of Pergamon, a Greek city that controlled most of what today we would call Western Turkey, bequeathed his kingdom to Rome. The publicani promptly set about stripping it systematically. According to the author of Rubicon, Tom Holland, the aim was not to collect the official tribute owed, but to strong-arm the provincials into paying extra for the privilege of being fleeced. Debtors might be offered loans at ruinous rates in order to enslave them. Ships sailed for Italy crammed with the fruits of colonial extortion. There was a massive influx of slaves from Sicily and other newly acquired overseas territories. It was not unusual in the first century BC for 10,000 slaves to be auctioned at Delos in a single day. This huge supply of cheap labour helped further enrich the rich. Big landowners built up an extensive set of farming corporations, the so-called latifunda, using armies of imported slave labour. The freehold farmers of course, couldn't compete. Many small independent Roman farmers were forced to abandon the land and drifted workless into the city, Rome. Rome, which started off as a society of freehold farmers, became a military machine fueled by external plunder and internal slavery. In 124 BC, the plebeian tribune Marcius Philippius when proposing a law to redistribute land, claimed that all the property in Rome was owned by fewer than 2,000 people. His claim might have been an exaggeration, but wealth had indeed become highly concentrated. Angus Madison estimates that in the time of Augustus's death in AD 14, the elite, defined as senators, equites, comprised 121,000 people out of a total Italian population of 7 million. Yet by that time they took over half of total income in Italy. This was an extreme concentration of wealth and far greater than exists in any contemporary liberal democracy. In fact, it was the kind of extreme levels of inequality that one would have found in pre-revolutionary France in the late 18th century or Russia in the early 20th was certainly very far removed from the old ideal of Rome as an agrarian republic of freehold farmers. The increased concentration of power and wealth amongst a small elite provoked a crisis in Rome. Politics in the late republic became a contest between rival interests battling over the spoils. There was, if you like, a 21st century Roman version of our own There was, if you like, a first-century Roman version of our own 21st-century political populism. Things got so out of hand, they ended in civil war. The plebs elected first Tiberius Gracchus, a kind of cross between Jeremy Corbyn, perhaps, and Donald Trump, and then his brother, Gaius, as consuls to take on the vested interests. Like those of the left, the Gracchi brothers demanded more equality, land reform, 
and a dole to help the poor. They also raged against cheap migrant labour. The Gracchi brothers tried to break up the giant Latifunda farms. In 133 BC, Tiberius Gracchus advocated using the tax proceeds from Pergamum to fund land redistribution rather than simply funnel the riches into the hands of the elite via the Publicani. The response of the Gracchi to a system of provincial plunder which served to enrich the patrician elite was to demand that such proceeds be shared out with the plebs as well. And despite both coming to a grisly end at the hands of patrician mobs, Tiberius and Gaius partly got their way. The corn dole that they instigated in 123 BC to feed the Roman poor remained in place until the very end of the empire. It was even expanded as a form of welfare. But the achievement of the Gracchi, insofar as they had one, was to ensure that it was no longer just the oligarchs that extorted the provinces. The poorer Romans joined in too. The corn dole that fed over a quarter of a million Romans a day by the time of Augustus was largely provided by Egypt, the personal possession of the emperor. Oppression and extortion of the provinces reached an epic scale. After the Gracchi's demise, late Roman Republican politics continued to be dominated by the struggle between the elitist and populist factions, the Optimates versus the Populares, Sulla against Gaius Marius, Pompey versus Caesar. It was a conflict that ultimately destroyed the Republic. The plebs might have got their dole, but the oligarchs ultimately prevailed. Sulla suppressed the plebeian faction and formally curbed the power of their tribunes. Democracy turned to oligarchy. The Republic had ceased to exist long before Julius Caesar formally overthrew it in 49 BC. The Roman Republic, unlike Athens, never succumbed to external predators. She fell to a clique of powerful generals and politicians whose fierce rivalry led them to ignore constitutional constraints. Members of the warring elite, Julius Caesar and Octavius, launched what was in effect a constitutional coup. Efforts to restore the Republic, several emperors pledged to do it, were rendered meaningless because there were simply too many vested interests in the imperial order, from Praetorian guards to rich senators. At the Battle of Actium in 31 BC, one of the warring oligarchs, Octavian, defeated his rival. Calling himself Augustus, the Principes, or the First, he established a military dictatorship. His successor, Tiberius, abolished the plebeian assembly. It might have been a relatively benign military dictatorship at first, but power was now in the hands of one person, who more often than not asserted his claims to the job through force. The constitution that Polybius described in such detail in the 2nd century BC had gone forever, and with it the genius of Roman civilization. The problems that the centralization of power produced were not immediately apparent. In fact, Roman grandeur was all the greater once she became an imperial power. Given the violent disorder that had gone before, the rule of Augustus, even in the eyes of republican traditionists, must have seemed like it 
enormous improvement. Augustus encouraged trade and abolished tax farming. He made the collection of taxes less arbitrary and he removed disincentives to trade and commerce. The early empire, wrote the Russian historian Michael Rostrovs, was a period of almost complete freedom for trade and splendid opportunity for private initiative. But with power so centralised, the seeds of destruction had been sown. Stagnation set in very slowly. According to the economic historian Raymond Goldsmith, there is no evidence of an upward trend in income per head over the first two centuries of empire. Under the empire, Italy no longer lived through mutual exchange by trading with far-flung parts of the Mediterranean. She became increasingly parasitical, living off redistribution. The empire became a military machine which needed feeding. This was done partly through conquest and plunder. The Roman Empire expanded to reach its greatest territorial extent and of Trajan between AD 98 and AD 117, and partly by pauperizing the provinces. But whatever spoils it might have yielded in the short term, redistribution couldn't sustain the growth produced by mutual exchange. Intensive growth didn't just stop, it actually went into reverse. The military machine of empire put constant upward pressure on taxes. Extortionate taxes often became simple extortion. Caligula achieved what the Gracchi had failed to do when he seized the estates of many of the richest Roman landowners. Property rights became progressively less secure as confiscation became an established practice. Increasingly, big fortunes were not made through mutual exchange or by selling to a market, but by being the beneficiary of one of the increasingly frequent rounds of land expropriation. Wealth became ever more concentrated. Goldsmith estimates that the wealthiest 3% in Italy accounted for a quarter of all income. A change of emperor could mean the sudden loss of a family estate, or if you backed the right horse, gaining one. Many of the elite, therefore, had a vested interest in the imperial succession. Perhaps unsurprisingly, contests to secede the purple became increasingly violent. From AD 180 on, it was rare for an empire, uh, it was rare for an emperor to die peacefully. Pressure to provide money to the army was unrelenting. So much so, in fact, that Nero took the decision to debase the currency, reducing the silver content of the denarius to 90%. Cutting the amount of silver by 10% meant that the authorities were a little better off for every debased coin they issued, and the person who received that coin, 10% worse off. It was a way of transferring money from the citizen to the state. To help pay for a vast military machine, Roman emperors routinely debased the currency by reducing its silver content further. Emperor Trojan reduced the silver content to 85%. Marcus Aurelius to 75%. By the reign of Septimus Severus, AD 193 to AD 211, it was down to 50%. By the middle of the 3rd century, it was down to 5%. This debasement of the Roman currency caused massive inflation. 
by the time of Diocletian, AD 284 to AD 305, prices were rising so fast that he issued an edict to try to control the price of many goods throughout the empire. Like our own elites, that of Rome not only manipulated the money supply to enrich the few, they started issuing cheap credit. Tiberius gave out low-cost loans to crony companies involved in public works projects. Rome ultimately became an economic empty shell, receiving taxes, receiving grain and goods from the provinces, but producing almost nothing herself. The mob of Rome and palace favourites produced nothing, yet continually demanded more, leading to an intolerable burden on the productive classes, according to the writer Bruce Barclay. Marine archaeologists have recovered the remains of shipwrecks which carried cargoes around the Mediterranean in antiquity. Dating the wrecks and then counting the number from different centuries has given archaeologists a crude indicator as to the volume of sea trade at any particular time. Using this system of measurement, it was seen that there was a dramatic decrease in seaborne traffic at this time. Trade seems to have dried up and goods were transported only according to central command and under duress, not traded freely. No longer trading with others, but extorting from them, and without a sound currency to underpin trade and investment, Italy de-industrialised. The factories that had existed in the 1st century BC were gone by the 3rd century AD. There was no longer a mass market for many goods, as there had been. In the Western Empire, the eastern part seems to have fared a bit better. Regional specialisation and exchange dried up. Again, evidence from the Greenland ice cores shows a fall in the amount of lead and silver released into the atmosphere, which testifies further to this industrial decline. Manufacturing did not return to the level it had reached in the 1st century AD until the 13th century. Romans had once been innovators capable of taking new technology and using it to great effect. It's striking that there was almost a complete absence of technological innovation during the period of empire. Businesses which had been in private hands were increasingly corralled into collegia or cartels. Workers were organised into restrictive guilds. By the 3rd century AD, there was no longer a free labour market. Imperial decrees forbid labour. Imperial decrees forbid workers from changing jobs or moving from one workplace to another, something that in the first century AD only slaves were prevented from doing. Trade fell precipitously, and inflation in the third century AD is estimated to have been fifteen thousand percent, making monetary exchange increasingly difficult. With the monetary economy breaking down normal taxation became harder and harder to levy. The Roman state began to demand taxes in the form of goods and services. The tax contribution, moreover, was calculated according to military need. This was not the only way in which the late Roman economy began to take on many of the attributes of feudalism long before any Goths showed up. Agricultural workers became increasingly semi-servile colonial. Like slaves, they were increasingly bound to the land and to a landlord. 
As this proto-feudalism took hold, they were, like vassals, prevented from selling their own property without their landlord's permission. With ruinous tax rates, little incentive to trade, few gains to be had from specialization, landlords turned their estates into increasingly self-contained units. Self-sufficiency might have been essential, but it meant doing without the gains in output per person that had created such wealth in an earlier age. Italians became poorer. To grasp the full scale of this economic calamity, consider the fact that in AD 400, the number of people living on the Italian peninsula had plummeted by about a third, from 7 million in AD 14 to 5 million, the lowest number since 200 BC. This decline happened before not as a consequence of the barbarian invasions. It is clear, writes Madison, that there was a significant decline in per capita income in all the West European provinces. In fact, income per capita in Italy in AD 400 fell back to where it had been in 300 BC, 700 years before. The economy had returned to a system of localized self-sufficiency. As the Belgian medievalist Henry Pirenne puts it, with the end of trade, specialization, and exchange, quote, the minting of gold had ceased. The lending of money at interest was prohibited. There was no longer a professional class of merchants. Oriental products were no longer imported. The circulation of money reduced to a minimum. Civilization had regressed to the purely agricultural. By the time that those external predators, the Goths and the Vandals and all the rest of them showed up, they were helping themselves to what Rome's own parasites had left behind. For the following six centuries, there's little evidence of any increase in per capita income or output anywhere in Europe. As we shall see, what increases there were in terms of per capita income or output occurred elsewhere. But then, from about 1000 AD, an extraordinary society emerged off the coast of Italy. Venice. It too was a republic, and her economic achievement is also a measure of how effectively she managed to disperse power internally. And it's to Venice that we shall turn our attention to next. Thank you for listening to this episode of Progress versus Parasites. I'm Douglas Carswell, and I very much enjoyed talking to you about the subject of my book. If you're interested in hearing more from this series, please do listen to some of the other episodes available on my podcast.